0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Hope you can join me in having a Bible at home or using your phone as we uh, really kind of come down the home stretch of this series. We have just a couple of weeks left. Um, I'm just excited to see what God has in store for us as we now wrap up this book that we've been in for several months in 2020. But if you're familiar with the world of journalism, there's a household phrase, or really a couple of household phrases, on the record, off the record. Are you familiar with this? If a journalist is talking to, let's say an athlete or a politician or a general or anybody they're interviewing, anybody interesting enough to write about, I guess, uh, that conversation is either either defined as on the record, meaning that uh, the journalist can quote those person's words, word for word. This is gonna be on the record. Attach my name to what I'm telling you. But off the record is information that somebody might want a journalist to know but they don't want it to be attributed back to them. Don't quote me. This is for you to know. This is for some context, maybe some things that you can hint at or include, but do not attach my name to it. This is off the record. So you might read an article online or in the newspaper if you still read the newspaper, and uh, you might see the line, uh, Sources from the White House say blank. Or, or, or a source from inside the Los Angeles Lakers uh, organization says. When, when you read that, that's an off the record convo. But it's better, I think, when somebody goes on the record. They're willing to talk to a journalist, they're willing to see their point kind of conveyed, put my name to it. You might even hear, in maybe even a heated moment, maybe like an athlete at their locker after a game might say to a, a reporter, um, write that down. I'm not afraid to have that get published. Make sure you get it right. I'll own it. Well, near the end of chapter 34 this morning, God will tell Moses explicitly, write these words. Moses, get them on the record. And by the end, you'll understand why uh, of all the times and conversations that they've had in Exodus, why this is the first and only time we see the direct command from God, write these words. Reminder where we're at here in the story, um, in chapter 34, we uh, last week looked at chapter 33, when, when, when Moses interceded on behalf of himself and the people of Israel, um, uh, after their rebellion and making a golden calf, uh, Moses interceded uh, to uh, not, not convince God, but that God providentially worked through Moses' intercession to say, I will go with you to the promised land, and then at the end of chapter 33, Moses said, show me your glory. And then we get to chapter 34. Let's start with the first couple of verses. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Um, okay, so before Moses um, heads up back the mountain uh, where God will pass by him, he needs to cut two tablets out of stone that will contain the newly written law. The 10 words or the 10 commandments that were, um, that were first given him to Exodus in Exodus 24. But notice the difference this time. This time Moses has to bring his own back in 24. Let me remind you of chapter uh, 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Now, God tells Moses, you provide the stone tablets, which I will write on, because you broke the first ones now he's referring to the time uh, when moses came off the mountain after spending 40 days and 40 nights and got the instructions for the tabernacle and uh, got the tablets written with the law written in stone he comes down the mountain he finds israel uh, in just egregious rebellion uh, uh, building and crafting the golden calf and moses in his anger smashed the tablets on the ground and they shattered to pieces so we're not told specifically why Moses had to now bring his own, but perhaps it's a reminder to all of Israel that they sinned against God, that, uh, that even the renewal of this covenant, that just a reminder that these are, uh, were not provided by God himself. Maybe it's an indictment on Moses himself that even in his righteous anger, he should not have broke the tablets that contains God's law. Isn't it true that we tend to justify sinful actions ourselves in response and because of the sin of others. Well, I know it might have not been ideal or right, but uh, look what they did to cause me to do that. Or I had a right to say what I said because of what they did or because of what they said. And I had to display my anger in this way so that they would know how wrong they were. Anyone else? Let's just agree that most of the time, can we say 90% of the time, maybe more, our anger is not nearly as righteous as we would claim it to be. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. But either way, that's speculation. Moses is back at the top of the mountain and now he has his own stone tablets. Let's jump down to verse 5 and read 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. We're going to see through this chapter this progression, beginning with, number one, God's essential glory. Okay, again, let's just ensure we kind of understand the context here and kind of take a step back. Moses said in chapter 33, Please show me your glory. And if you remember, God kind of gave him a a yes and a no. He said, "I, I will pass by you, but you must be hidden for you can't see all of me and live. You can't handle all of my glory. So Moses is now at the top of the mountain and God descends in a cloud and he does pass before him. But here's what's important. Listen close. We're never told what Moses saw. We're told what he heard. When Moses asked God to see His glory, God passed by and proclaimed the character of His name. You see, church, God always has been and God always will be a God who speaks. He spoke creation into being. He spoke to Abram He spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Beyond Moses, he will speak through kings. He will speak to and through prophets. And finally, he will speak through his Son, which is the Word becoming flesh. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, following His resurrection, the church spread, how? By the faithful preaching, audible preaching of the Word of God, inspired by the invisible Spirit of God. Paul in Romans 10, 14, and 15 says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. This is why in the New Testament, especially the author of previews, Hebrews, will say that the believers of the the Old Testament, including Moses, the men and women saved in the Old Testament, they were saved by faith. And the author of Hebrews in 11.1 will define what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Listen, the conviction of things not seen. Cannot emphasize this enough. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God proclaimed the character of his name. I recently finished up the novel um, called All the Light We Cannot See. Maybe you've read it and think it's fairly well known. If not, add it to your summer reading list. It's a novel set in the years leading up to World War II. And it follows the lives of a, of a German boy and a French girl. And it starts with, with them early and young in age and how they grow up into adulthood and how their lives would eventually intersect during the war. And never before in a novel have I found so many kind of one-liners that would just kind of make me stop reading and contemplate life. At one point, the German boy, his name was Werner, he had a younger sister. She was about eight years old at this point in the story. And Werner was getting caught up in the Nazi regime and being trained as the young men were beginning to be trained to be kind of just filled into the German Nazi army. And his younger sister, wise behind her years. Simply said this to him to try to convince him to not get swept up in this doctrine. She said, quote, Don't you want to be alive before you die? Another quote, this one coming from the French girl in the story, her name is Marie, who was blind. And she said at one point, Open your eyes. And see what you can with them before they close forever. I remember immediately putting the book down and from there just going right to Ephesians 1 and reading Paul's prayer, which this reminded me of. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him. Listen, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. All the light we cannot see. But we hear, and by hearing, we know the God who speaks and have faith, the conviction of things not seen. So, what did God say about himself? He said a lot. The Lord, the Lord, that's all caps, right? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now a question comes from that that we will answer eventually this morning. How, how can God be gracious and forgiving while also punishing the guilty? Doesn't it have to be one or the other? I'm going to let that hang in suspense for us for a little bit. But these will be some of the most important words in the Bible. And the reason we know that is because the rest of the Bible will quote it dozens of times, especially within the Old Testament. It will be quoted by kings. David and Solomon. It'll be quoted by poets and songwriters in the Psalms. It'll be quoted by prophets and preachers like Jonah and Joel. That when Moses asked to see God's glory, he was given a list of God's attributes, of who he is. Knowing that will do more to transform him, more to stir his affections, more to propel obedience than any kind of self-help tips that would have been helpful for Moses at the top of the mountain on how to live a better life or a fuller life or a more enjoyable life. That just knowing who God is, his self-revelation of himself will do more to change our lives than any list of self-help tips ever will. So do you ever wonder, what is God's glory? I don't think there's any word you're going to hear more in and around Grace Church, whether in the preaching or the singing or the praying. And not only that, but in kind of all the dozens of conversations we might have with people from Grace, the word of God's glory. We want to give him all the glory, all the glory to God. Live for his glory and his glorious name. Why? What is God's glory? It is the weight of all of His attributes, the totality of all His perfection in all who He is. We saw it last week, I'll say it again. The best thing about God is God. Not the blessings that you may or may not get from him, but him, he is the best gift. So if nothing else this morning, you just please remember this, that Moses asked to see God's glory, and in response, God spoke to him about himself, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his justice, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. And so Moses did the one thing that one can do when they actually come in contact with the living God. He bowed his head and he worshiped. This is God's essential glory. Let's keep going. Jump down to verse 10. Let's read to verse 16. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest they become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take up their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Number two, we see the progression. God's essential glory alone. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll notice that the heading before verse 10 is "Is the Covenant Renewed?" Because one of the biggest questions remaining for Moses after the golden calf, one of the biggest questions for him and the nation of Israel is, "What will become of this covenant that God had made with His people now that it has been broken? What's going to come of it? If this were merely a contract, God would be free to leave. If this was all business." All law, all performance-based, Israel clearly broke the covenant, and God can be on his way. Right? That's how we view contracts. You have a cable bill, you have Verizon or Optimum, and the other person's always trying to get you to switch to the other, or maybe you just want to cut the cord all together and go Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, Whatever it is your contract is, it's a contract. You pay for services, they provide the service. If they stop providing the service, you don't have to pay. And if you stop paying, they don't have to provide. That's a contract. But this, what we see in Exodus between God and Israel, was never a contract. It was always a covenant of grace. And this is, in and of itself, a display of God's mercy. The people of God have grumbled against Him, they've mocked Him, they've replaced Him in their hearts and minds. And yet, here we go, back to the top of the mountain, where God once again will reveal himself and reaffirm his covenant to his people again. And when God made the covenant the first time, he did so knowing full well that Israel would not be faithful to him. And he did it anyway. It's a covenant of grace. The assurance for God's people was not rooted in their obedience but in God's character, which we just heard him proclaim. And this doesn't mean that obedience does not matter for the people of Israel. Actually, it means kind of quite the contrary, because after he reaffirms the covenant, God will once again lay out the terms of the covenant for the rest of the chapter of how Israel shall live. So it doesn't mean obedience doesn't matter. It means that the fuel and the motivation and the power for that obedience will be the foundation of God's grace. This is what it means to be God's people. To not obey so that maybe one day God will accept you, but it's to obey because you've already been accepted by God. That might seem like a wordsmithing or just a slight change, but it makes all the difference. If you're not a Christian and you're you're watching this, I just want you to know that the Gospel is not that you need to be good enough or moral enough or obedient enough in order to earn and gain God's love. But the Gospel is a proclamation that God's love for you is based out of His own glorious grace. And that grace produces obedience and is what provides the motivation for you to submit and live for Him. So if you do ever ask a believer, hey, um, how do they know they're saved? How do they know that's true for them? They shouldn't be saying, well, look at me. Look at my life. Look at what I'm doing. But primarily, they should say, look at what He has done. Look at God. Look at what He says, that I am who He says I am. And my eyes are fixed on him. And from here through verse 26 of chapter 34, God will repeat several aspects of the covenant that we've already covered in the book of Exodus. The whole covenant is is not repeated here, but select aspects of it. So, So why does God repeat some in chapter 34, but not all? Some of the 10 words, some of the other aspects of the God's law. We're never told explicitly why, but it seems that the terms of the covenant are repeated, the ones that are repeated are done so because they are the ones that were especially broken when Israel created the golden calf. So God reaffirms and kind of re-spotlights the ones that are important for them to remember, beginning with the first and most important of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. One commentator rightly noted that you cannot break any of the commandments in God's law without also breaking the first one because all sin and rebellion is rooted in idolatry in glorifying a lesser God in place of the one true God. So verse 12, again, um, read it again. He says, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. In chapter 20, when we first read the Ten Commandments, God said, you shall serve no other gods before me, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he is reaffirming the unnegotiable truth that we are called to submit and flourish under the glory of God alone. It's an exclusive relationship. And he will not tolerate his people pursuing other gods for the good of his people. Many of you know and may have seen last week that J.I. Packer passed away at the age of 93. He was among the most influential writers and theologians in modern history, more in the 20th century, but obviously lived now into the 21st century. He's the author of one of the most impactful books I've ever read, the book Knowing God, that I would encourage every believer to read. But he writes this on the jealousy of God. Quote, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. Love that. God's jealousy as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. God knows that the joy of his people True joy is rooted in them living for his glory alone. And the snare of other gods are all around us. They, they draw us in with uh, try to gain our affections. It's the same snare that Eve faced in the garden and the, and the same snare that David faced when he looked out across his balcony and saw Bathsheba. The same snare that Solomon would face with the gods of foreign wives. So just know this, church, No one can serve two gods. Everyone will have a foundational God that will call for their primary and supreme affection, no matter what they call it. A generation after this passage, Joshua will say to the Israelites famously, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. And a couple thousand years later, Jesus will be teaching his disciples and he will say explicitly, no one can serve two masters for he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then in context of what he was teaching about, he finishes with this, you cannot serve God and money. Everyone faces this question in life No one will escape it. Will you commit to glorify God alone as your supreme God, the one who garners your foundational affections to make much of Him? That's what it is to glorify God. We talk about glorifying God. It's to make much of Him above all else, that He is our premier love in this life. So take care, church. We should listen here. This is a warning for us. Take care to not be led astray by false gods in this world that will always overpromise and underdeliver. It's a shot across the bow that we all on some level or have snares in our life, have things that are drawing us in. And even now in your life, there are things that are causing you to drift closer to it, Lord, that you are getting closer to the line that nobody drifts into sin. That we walk towards it. And this is a warning. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with that inappropriate relationship. Stop inching towards it. Don't mess with that greed and the decision that's going to that maybe cut some corners in order to make some more money. Don't mess with it. Watch that snare of gossip that's turning up and, and, and really causing you to draw you in. Don't mess with it. Turn back to God before it's too late. Open your eyes before they close forever. All right, let's finish. Let's go down to verse 27 of chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Number three, and lastly, we see the progression. God's essential glory alone in Christ. This was an on-the-record conversation between God and Moses. Moses. It was not for private knowledge. This was for public consumption. Moses, write these words. Get this covenant down in stone, right? That figure of speech, it, this is written in stone. Where does that phrase come from? It comes from right here, where it would be literally written in stone on the tablets that now Moses provided. Now, for those paying close attention, you might have a question here. That God is telling Moses, write these words. But way back in verse 1, God told Moses, Bring me the tablets, and I will write on them. So which is it? Who's the one writing? God or Moses? A couple things. Perhaps God wrote some, and Moses wrote some. Maybe God wrote the Ten Commandments, and Moses wrote the rest of the covenant. Or, maybe God is telling Moses, Write these words meaning about the whole interaction they're having. Maybe he's not talking just about the tablets, but he's talking about the the whole book of Exodus that eventually Moses will write, maybe. Or, I think, it speaks to the truth of God's written word and that there is a dual authorship. Dual meaning two. Meaning that both God and man wrote these words. Which is a reflection of the entire Bible when it's all said and done. Somebody asked you a question? Maybe a non-believer? Hey, who wrote the Bible? You, You got two answers in one. Forty authors wrote the Bible over 1,500 years in three languages from kings to fishermen and everywhere in between. That's the first answer. Mankind wrote the Bible. But it's not the complete answer second answer is God. In its totality, it is the Word of God. Peter, the fisherman, wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So was the Bible written by man or God? The answer is yes. That mankind was carried along by God, the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we know and can believe this, the reason why this is not too much of a thing for us to wrap our head around is because it gets us right to the core and the center of who God is. The written word, as we saw and heard earlier in the, ser- in, in the sermon, is equated with the personified word in John chapter 1. That's how he starts his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus. So if you were asked this question: was Jesus Christ a man or was he God? The answer. You know the answer. Yes. He had two natures in one person. He was fully man and he was fully God. And the one who ushered in the new covenant that forever binds God and His people, was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And He embodied the full character of God in the flesh so that He alone could atone for the sins of the world. The Bible tells us the story of the glory of God alone in Christ because Christ alone shows us how God's love and God's justice can be satisfied. So, we've been hanging in suspense this whole time. When God proclaimed his name to Moses, we asked the question hey, how can God be loving and gracious and at the same time? How can it be that he will never clear the guilty? How is that possible? Doesn't it have to be one or the other? And that question leads us to the cross. The cross is the great collision of the character of God. The cross is the declaration that he by no means just clears the guilty and that He also will pour out His grace on those who would put their faith in Him. Jesus is the final piece of the puzzle that brings all of history into focus. He's the God-man, laying down His life as a sacrifice for sin, taking the guilt of sin upon Himself, and pouring out the love of God on the lives of many. And it's because of Christ where we in the church today can say without a shadow of the doubt that our purpose is to glorify Him. Because just as Moses bowed and worshipped on the mountain when he was passed by by God, so too the only rightful response, the only sensible response of somebody who comes in contact with the living God, who's, who's someone whose eyes have been enlightened by the glory of Christ, is to worship and submit our whole selves to Him. Nobody truly sees Jesus and doesn't commit to follow him for the heart who sees god we choose this day whom we'll serve and moses comes off the mountain his face shining like the sun as the one who saw god and also the one who pointed to the true and better mediator jesus christ and i'll finish with this maybe we've made this connection while we were going along here in matthew 17 Jesus took his three closest disciples to the top of the high mountain and we're told that he was transfigured before them. What's that mean? Matthew 17, verse 2. His face shone like the sun. And who appeared with them at the top of the mountain? Moses. And he was speaking with them. The same God who appeared before Moses at Mount Sinai now appears before him in the person of Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God's glory. So it turns out that Moses, after all, did get to see the glory of God. And for those who believe in Christ, we too will, as John says in 1 John 3, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Do you want to be alive before you die? Turn to Christ, believe in him, and choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity and connection of your word from cover to cover, how it tells one single story, Lord, of how you're restoring and redeeming your creation. We thank you how each week along the last uh, seven plus months, Lord, almost eight months, we have seen how your word points from Exodus to Christ, how it takes many paths to one Savior. And Lord, I pray that our eyes of our hearts would be open, Lord, to love you more, to know you more, to want to dig deeper into who you are. And I pray that you would open the eyes of hearts this morning, and that would be for your glory and our joy. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.